Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Dr. Andreas Krieg. He's a lecturer at the School of Security Studies at King's College London and at the Royal College of Defense Studies and a fellow at the Institute of Middle East Studies. Andreas edited Divided Gulf, The Anatomy of a Crisis, published by Palgrave in 2019. With the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday, our conversation is about the response of America and the UK to the events of that terrible day, what came to be called the War on Terror. Andreas, uh, thanks for joining us. Good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Bill. Thanks to be on. What was the so-called War on Terror supposed to be about? What were those who invoked it seeking to achieve? That's the, that's that's the the grand question of what was the objective, you know, in terms of strategy. You know, strategy is always about ends, ways, and means, and I think the ends were all over the place. There was this idea of being able to destroy not just Al Qaeda but all kind of global jihadist groups, and doing so via means which are mostly were mostly military in nature, and um, there was, I think, the 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 very weird thought that this could be done fairly quickly and that was an easy task to do. I think what people in charge, particularly in the United States, but also to an extent in the United Kingdom, um, what they were thinking was that this was a, they did, they, or what they failed to understand was that this is, was a new 21st century threat, which was intangible, uh, which was globalized and transnational in nature. There wasn't any real geographical scope to that, despite the fact that Afghanistan, obviously, very early on, you know, appeared on the map. Um, it was a threat that um, came from all over the place. That was a constant threat. It wasn't a a, a kind of tied to a particular uh, temporal space or geographic space. And it was a sort of a twenty first century threat that was so completely different to anything that the West had faced in the twentieth century. Where you know during the Cold War it was kind of clear where the enemy was and and where the enemy was coming from and how to how to engage that threat. While the the, the problem with terrorism is that it wasn't a threat, uh, as much more of a risk. Um, so obviously 9/11 had shown us that this risk could, uh, you know, kind of uh, develop into a threat. The problem was though that the threat itself um, was 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 intangible and thereby it was about risk management. A risk management is entirely different than anything that states had faced before. I think the objective of trying to uh, disrupt these kind of networks of, of jihadists across the globe was something that ha- that needed a, a whole-of-government approach rather than just a military one. But the Bush administration, also the UK government then later on, uh, thought that, you know, we, we've always done it that way. When we fought terrorism and when we fought um, our enemies in the 20th century, we've always done it with overwhelming firepower. And that's what we had. We had overwhelming firepower. And I think the idea was... Let's use that overwhelming firepower to kind of rectify the world and adv- advance our liberal values, which will kind of be the panacea to all the problems to, uh, that, that led to terrorism. But it was basically inherently based on a failed understanding of the root causes of terrorism, also a failed understanding of, of how, you know, you could actually untangle these kind of networks and, and make this, at least if not go away, at least mitigate that threat or risk. Hmm. And, and 20 years on from 9-11, I wonder if anyone could have and should have foreseen the trap, because that's what you're describing, really, the trap that the war on terror would take us into. Do you think we should have foreseen that? We should have foreseen that, but obviously in hindsight, we're always uh, smarter than we were uh, 20 years ago. I, I, and also, also we, don't, we, shouldn't understand, we shouldn't forget that this was an ideological fight. 
So unlike the terrorist groups that the West had faced previously or that the world had faced previously in the 20th century, like the PLO or, um, or um, IRA, this was not a, this global jihadist threat from Al-Qaeda in particular was not a threat that was tied to a geographical space. It wasn't tied to, a, to an insurgency movement. It wasn't tied to a political message. So we couldn't really understand what this was all about. It was an ideological threat. And I think that the, the way that uh, the West engaged that ideological threat was with an ideological hammer. And that ideological hammer was, you know, neoconservatism and the idea that we were exporting liberal values and doing so uh, particularly focused on Islam. You know, the global war on terror was always one that was predominantly, if not entirely, focused on fighting political Islam and, and radical Islam. It completely left out all the other threats uh, that could that we're seeing today when we're looking at terrorism. It was a very, very unilateral, very one-dimensional look at, at terrorism. And uh, and I think it it's all the, the problems down the line that we're seeing now with that war on terror, I think w- they weren't uh, anticipated because those people who were uh, on the, at the helm in, in, the, in the early 2000s were basically people that were ideological themselves. They were ideologically convinced that what they were doing was the right thing to do and that they were acting... Uh, from a from a position of a moral high ground, in the same way that the jihadists was were thinking themselves that they were ideologically uh, um, operating from a moral high ground, and so it was one ideological camp fighting another ideological camp, and so in that respect, strategy was already flawed from the beginning because there was no rational input into that. Mm. But you know, if we look at the route of the Taliban and then that that really sudden pivot. To the war in Iraq, George Bush and Tony Blair saw that as a as a simple straight line, a logical extension of this war on terror. But it wasn't a straight line, was it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, but it was ideolo- in the, in terms of the new conservative ideology of trying to export, making the world a better place by exporting an idea of of liberalism to the world. Um, it, it was linked because it was no longer just about um, fighting you know, non-state actors and, and, and terrorist non-state actors, but fighting any sort of regime that was anti-American, anti-liberal in that in that respect, or anti-Western. And uh, all of that under the pretext of fighting those who were harboring, so to speak, terrorism. And logically as well, I mean, you know, we a lot has been said about this, obviously, but if you look at the intelligence reports, if you look at how rationally there was an attempt to kind of connect the dots between Afghanistan and Iraq. And that started already very early on in 2001, by the way. So after 9-11, you know, Afghanistan was the focal point of that. Uh, the, the main thrust was going to Afghanistan. But very early on, people in the administration Washington were already saying, if we do Afghanistan, we have to go to Iraq next because they are connected. Um, and you see again that these two are, rationally speaking, not connected. I mean, you know, Al-Qaeda was based predominantly in Afghanistan, at least the leadership was. Um, but the Taliban weren't necessarily uh, Al-Qaeda, but still they were harboring them. So there was a rational cause there to say, let's remove that regime and make sure they're no longer harboring terrorism. And then going to Iraq, this was um, this was a geopolitical, geostrategic and even personal vendetta of the of, of the Bush, Bush administration to try to get in there and, and remove that regime. And all of that was kind of justified under the same pretext saying, OK, we're going to export liberalism. We're going to build a liberal Afghanistan and a liberal Iraq. We're liberating the people. And as we do this, we will not only build up regimes that are amicable towards us and friendly towards us, but we're also uh, creating safe spaces that can, can no longer be exploited by terrorists. Uh, very simple thinking. And um, and again, I mean, much of what happened later on in the war of, of, uh, against terror uh, fo- followed the same th- thought of uh, thinking. 
that the the overall um, securitization of terrorism, um, this this making this this the most existential threat of the tr- early 21st century, this the, all the media effort that was put into that, the PR effort that were put into that, you were creating a threat out of a risk um, that then could be used as a justification for pretty much anything and any sort of um, military operation intervention, any violation of international law and human rights, because this was kind of the overarching grand strategic um, uh, objective of the war on terror. And with that, you could, you know, you could intervene in, in, in countries without having a UN, um, you know, having the endorsement of, of the United Nations Security Council. You could go in violating human rights by, you know, torturing people or abducting them, having extrajudicial killings in anywhere all over the world. And uh, you, you think you could get away with it. And, and I think that the main issue here is that what the war on terror has done is it has eroded everything or anything that the West ever stood for. So by saying we want to export liberalism and we want to export our Western way of thinking to the rest of the world, I think what it, ha- what ha- what it has created has actually had the opposite effect because it has eroded any appeal that the Western system might have had be- before the, we- the war on terror. Uh, because, you know, liberal democracy, liberal values, human rights, all of them, all of these um, normative foundations for our Western civilization have been eroded throughout this course of the war on terror and thereby has been somewhat self-defeating because any appeal that we might have had before was uh, certainly disappeared uh, in not just in the Islamic world but across the world anywhere that we did intervene as the West uh, particularly US led uh, I think our uh, appeal and our soft power has been immensely uh, eroded and has kind of re- withdrawn our uh, or undermined our ability and, and, and freedom to maneuver and I think that's the result of what we're seeing today is that the message and the grand strategic narrative that we used to have about liberal values, about democracy, about human rights, no longer hold. And everybody will always hold against us that, you know, Iraq, predominantly Iraq, but also other things that were done, Guantanamo, uh, extrajudicial killings through drone strikes. Um, all of that has completely undermined our credibility in, in terms of what we stand for and has thereby also led to the rise of of alternative actors such as Russia and China, because they came in and said, you know, we also have a message for you. We might not be the good guys, but look at the West; they're they're equally bad. Yeah, that's a that's kind of a lethal cocktail, isn't it, of arrogance and and ignorance. Uh, Abu Musa al Zakawi fought in Afghanistan, pledged allegiance to Al Qaeda to uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, and he led a skillful and vicious insurgency in Iraq until he was killed in two thousand and six. An even more vicious insurgency followed with ISIS and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, the caliphate. How much did blunders by the U.S. and the U.K. contribute to the emergence of these brutal, brutal insurgencies? Good that you, that you actually mentioned insurgency here, because much of what we used to frame as terrorism and what the West used to frame as terrorism was essentially insurgency. Um, while al-Qaeda might have not been an insurgency in 2001, what happened in you know Al Qaeda in Iraq in, in the in in the in the years that followed the intervention uh, and the war in Iraq uh, was an insurgency. So you had these same um, jihadist narratives and individuals who were fighting for a global jihad, kind of mixing with local insurgents and people who were actually aggrieved. And then you had this kind of uh, complex hybrid um, between an insurgency movement and a global terrorist organization. And, you know, both Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then later on ISIS was kind of an amalgamation of these two um, that that obviously made it a lot more powerful because now you suddenly had 
you know, you had support on the ground. You had uh, you were controlling hearts and minds on the ground that were that were that were then helping you uh, in your in your insurgency. The root cause of that insurgency again is not ideology. It's not Islam. The root cause of that uh, of that mobilization in that space was failed governance in this part of the world. Uh, failed governance in Iraq, predominantly when we look at Al Qaeda in Iraq and ISIS in particular. So, and and this this problem with governance was the result of a failed strategy of nation and state building that came under the auspices or under the umbrella of, of the war on terror in, 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 in Iraq. What the West has built in Iraq uh, was another kleptocratic regime um, that was based on nepotism, that was not based on inclusion, that gave a you know free car to, you know, a, a carte blanche, if you will, to do whatever they wanted to do in order to remain in power, to create what's, so so to speak, um, you know, quote-unquote, stability. And, you know, the, the Maliki regime was a great, is a, is a great case study in that respect. Um, but consecutive uh, regimes and governance, governments in, in Iraq that were created and facilitated, enabled by the West and the United States, um, were basically failing to provide essential public goods to the people of Iraq and were based on exclusion. They were predominantly Shia. They didn't cater to the needs and grievances of of those people who were members of the previous regime. So, and I'm not just talking about the Ba'ath Party. I'm, I'm talking about tribal actors in Iraq. I'm talking about, uh, you know, a lot of the Sunni tribes in particular in, in, in the western part of Iraq and northwestern part of Iraq. They had grievances. They weren't integrated. They were actually excluded. They were, you know, their human rights were entirely ignored. Um, and the war on terror predominantly targeted them, um, and was this kind of war on terror dom domestically was then supported by the regime that was then created uh, by the Americans as a sort of proxy, and that obviously undermined the credibility not just of the West but also of these authoritarian, uh, kleptocratic, patrimonial regimes that were that were created during the war on terror. The same can be said about Afghanistan as well. By the way, uh, you know, some much of what we're seeing today in the collapse of Afghanistan is again the failure of the West to build sustainable governance and inclusive governance. And sustainable governance is based on inclusion, it's based on social justice, it's based on um, you know, creating uh, governance structures that cater to all parts of society. And all that has been somewhat you know, uh, ignored. We've created kleptocratic corrupt regimes that were not able to cater to the grievances of people. And, and then, obviously, that fuels insurgency and creates instability down the line. And again, I think that's something fundamentally that, we've, that we, as the West, have failed to, to understand. Mm, yeah, yeah, a huge, huge blunder because terrorism feeds on human misery and the vacuum, as, as you said, that's created by regimes that enrich themselves at the expense of the people that they're ruling over. Let's move to the Arab Spring, because that was a peaceful attempt, by and large, to hold regimes to account, to affect democratic change. The flip side, if you will, to terrorist violence, and yet we in the West let down the protesters, we abandoned them, allowing, for example, a military coup in Egypt. Is it fair to say that the Arab Spring was an antidote to violent jihad and one that we ignored? Absolutely. So if we say that the the, the root cause of insurgency and terrorism and in the in the Islamic world or Arab world or even in the, across the third world, I mean, if you look at Nigeria, for example, um, if you say that this is the root cause of it, then the remedy to all of this is more sustainable governance. 
And uh, sustainable governance doesn't necessarily mean liberal democracy. I think that's very important to, to, to bear in mind. So while the Arab Spring was an insurgency or an uprising against these authoritarian, autocratic, kleptocratic, corrupt regimes in the region, of which many were either created by the West or empowered by the West, if we look at the Mubarak regime in particular, and later on also Sisi regime in Egypt, um, then, uh, you know, they, they were, even if they weren't supported by the West, then they, they still kind of featured the same um, issues that, um, you know, that the, that the Iraqi regime had, uh, after the U.S. Um, after the U.S. led war um, uh, on Iraq, so the, the same features of authoritarianism, inability to govern, um, and uh, and also not being based on social justice. The Arab Spring was trying to remedy this. This was an insurgency against it. Most of these protesters and revolutionaries used democratic narratives, so they were saying we want we are fighting for democracy. But I think you know we should be careful when we talk about democracy in this context because many of those who were supporting the uprising weren't at least not weren't not necessarily interested in a western type of democracy i think it's more fun it was more fundamentally about social justice about inclusive governance uh, which doesn't necessarily mean uh, a democracy more participation in the civil societal space more participation in the political space again it, it looks like democracy but we, i don't want to use the word democracy here because it might be a bit uh, misleading because that would kind of feed into the neoconservative narrative of saying they all want liberal democracy. That's not what it was all about. And it brought together a, a wide spectrum of people, uh, these uprisings and, and revolutions that were not just the liberals uh, and, and the liberal democrats in, in this part of the world, because it was a wide spectrum of people. It brought together Islamists, conservative Islamists, as well as more moderate ones. It brought together all parts of you know women and men, uh, all social classes, if you will, to kind of trying to get rid of uh, what had been created, uh, you know, out of out of colonialism um, uh, and in, in 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 this part of the world, it could have created something that would have been more sustainable. And that that project obviously was never a straightforward one. Revolutions are always messy. There was no straightforward line from revolution to uh, state and nation building. But the problem here is the the idea of or the the uh, the lessons from the war in Iraq and uh, war in Afghanistan uh, for the West. Then at that point in time, 2010, 2011, already suggested that state and nation building is difficult and it's not something the West wants to engage in. So we didn't support them uh, sufficiently. We didn't support the revolutionaries sufficiently. Um, we initially didn't support them at all. Then when we did start to support them, we did this half-heartedly. Uh, we again took sides. We weren't an inclusive uh, kind of patron to this process. We w didn't try to act as a neutral party. And, and did so way too late. And obviously, that, that is kind of this abandonment of the Arab Spring over a, a period of time had also then created a, a vacuum of insecurity and instability in this part of the world as the West was withdrawing that then uh, empowered other states, local partners of the West, and particularly the United Arab Emirates, but also Saudi Arabia, to kind of become the counter-revolutionaries and fill that vacuum. And, and then using the same narrative that the West had used 10 years earlier, in, 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 in Afghanistan and Iraq, saying we're fighting terrorism, uh, which essentially was not about fighting terrorism, is about rolling back civil society, about, you know, putting the genie of revolution back in the box, um, you know, clamping down on human rights. And the CC, uh, you know, the CC coup in 2013 is a great uh, case in point here, um, because what you have, what you had there was the Emiratis kind of ripening an environment, ripening the grievances in, in Egypt in 2013. And, and creating a pretext then through 
steering up, mobilizing activists and you know creating mass protests that that could then could be exploited by militaries or the the Egyptian military and it was done under the pretext of fighting terrorism under the pretext of fighting the Muslim Brotherhood and any human rights abuse that came out of the Sisi regime or has come out of the Sisi regime since you know uh, in, in with, with mass shootings and obviously mass incarcerations uh, disappearances torture everything that came with it all the ugly side of the Sisi regime is a great case study to show how now the local regimes are using the same narratives that we've used during the war on terror, saying we're going to support you in the West in the war on terrorism, and we're going to do this to roll back civil society. We're going to do this, and uh, uh, you know, we 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 are creating more stability domestically. And everyone we're fighting, which are our political opponents, are terrorists. We're labeling labeling everyone who we don't like as terrorists, and now that should be um, that should give us legitimacy. And we've somewhat given them the tools, these authoritarians, including the UAE uh, and to an extent also Saudi Arabia, giving them the tools to justify any sort of clampdown on liberalism, human rights and um, and liberal values and civil society as terrorism and uh, as something illegitimate that needs to be eradicated. So I think the, the Arab Spring was a was a very good opportunity to build something new and by abandoning them and actually empowering the authoritarians through inaction and sometimes even through action because we then started to endorse the Sisi regime later on because we needed Egypt to be stable, um, meant that we have we have somewhat uh, empowered authoritarianism and the counter-revolution in this part of the world. Yeah, it's interesting and you raise a very good point there that all of these authoritarian regimes used uh, uh, the war on terror, brought in these uh, anti-terrorism laws, which were then applied to human rights activists. Uh, people were arrested, detained, abused, uh, forced confessions, sentenced to very long terms in jail. I'm thinking about people like Ahmed Mansour in the United Arab Emirates, uh, wonderfully brave and courageous people that there again, uh, one could say we have, we have abandoned. But, but how damaging has that been this this ability of these authoritarian regimes to 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 put into place these laws calling them anti-terror laws how damaging has that been to to any efforts to create accountable civil societies and and again to what extent are we in the west co-opted uh, and therefore co-conspirators if you will in in this in this effort to silence free speech and uh, suppress dissent I think it's a good, a good, a good term that you're using there, co-conspirators. I think that's 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 what we are, um, because where we weren't active, we weren't uh, we were inactive, and that inaction has also kind of enabled um, these these authoritarians to build these uh, regimes. And I'm looking at I'm looking at Egypt in particular because that was kind of the turning point of the Arab Spring. That was you know already elaborated on this. Uh, but even you know if you look at the Assad regime in Syria, uh, when you look at you know what's going on in Bahrain and, and clamping down on on that insurgency uh, or that revolution, uh, looking at Libya as well with Haftar's rise and more recently Tunisia as well. We have cre- we've given those parties in, in these part of the world a, who want to undermine civil society and build more exclusive governance systems, um, the tools to do so. The, the laws that were passed and all of them or most of them were justified in terms of fighting terrorism. Um, all these kind of anti-terror laws in this part of the world that were set up by authoritarians were immensely powerful in clamping down and undermining civil society. It, the, putting the genie of the revolutionary back in the box also meant removing civil society and removing that space and, and not only limiting it, 
I think in some countries, particularly in Egypt, but also in the UAE, there is no space anymore for civil society. So I would say that the counter-revolution had had an, a, a, a brought the, the, the region to a, to a place that was worse than it was before the revolution. So I think UAE, Egypt in particular, I think in these countries, the situation now is worse than it has ever been. And it has been, it's worse than it was before the Arab Spring. And again, it was because now... Uh, while pre-Arab Spring there was quite a lot of uh, leeway, at least for civil society, to act in a or to at least mobilize to, cert- to a certain extent, the Arab Spring and the regime insecurity and the fear of revolution, the fear of insurgency, the fear of civil societal mobilization led these authoritarians to use the terrorism, uh, the terrorism argument to kind of build uh, regimes that allow absolutely no freedom of speech, no civil liberties, no civil societal activism whatsoever, particularly in Egypt and the UAE. And we have somewhat supported it. Because every time that we raise the issue in the West of saying to Egypt or to the UAE, saying you need to be more uh, considerate of people like Ahmed Mansour and the, the 94 that were that were put in prison, and many, many more who have actually been silent, uh, silenced uh, uh, in, in the UAE, and, and obviously many thousands more that were silenced, disappeared or killed and tortured in Egypt, the, the response is, but we're always helping you to fight terrorism. You know, we've lost that moral high ground in in the first 10 years, or over, the, over the 20 years in the war on terror, to actually judge, because we've done exactly the same thing. We have enabled uh, extrajudicial killings, because that's what we have done through drone strikes and, and other types of assassinations across the world. We have enabled torturing camps, Guantanamo, all the black sites that were created to, to channel people who were entirely, um, you know, un connected at times to jihadism or, or political Islam or, or Al-Qaeda, who've just been disappeared and, and flown somewhere without anyone knowing. Um, we have obviously killed thousands and thousands and in, in hundreds of thousands in the wars that, that followed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and all that has been justified by, by the clampdown on terrorism or fight on terror. We've lost that moral high ground in that cause. We've undermined every single moral high ground that the West used to have. And in every conversation that we as the West have in terms of development, in terms of foreign policy, diplomats, even academics, when we start talking about, you know, you need to be better on this, you need to be more careful with this, or you need to respect these rights or civil liberties, we immediately get the pushback and saying, you've done exactly the same thing. And that is a very, very strong argument to make. And I think so in that respect, even if we haven't actively empowered, but as I said, in some cases we have, but even when we haven't, like Haftar in Libya, for example, by us not, not doing anything and enabling those authoritarians to go ahead, we've also, through our action, undermined the liberal world order that comes with values and norms that we've created over many decades. We've eroded this actively through the war on terror and thereby have kind of defeated our ability to actually stand up for anything uh, in, in this part of the world. Finally, Andreas, uh, there's that uh, terribly cliched phrase that's often trotted out by those in positions of authority. Uh, You know the phrase, there are lessons to be learned. I wonder if any lessons have been learned, and if so, what they may be. Yeah, I mean, the the West has been, not just the West, generally history works in cycles. And I think we fought, we always fought the, the previous war. We've always tried to learn the lesson from a previous war. And um, so Vietnam was a major lesson. After Vietnam, we said, we're not going to intervene anywhere. We made massive mistakes. So we, there were, were, were years and years of inaction or, or, or small wars that followed. 
uh, all the way up, if you will, to, um, you know, to 9-11. And then 9-11, we said, you know, overwhelming firepower. We have to do whatever we, we have that overwhelming firepower. We're going to use it. We're going to intervene and it's going to be massive, a mass mobilization, major combat operations. That failed. Then we, we, we went to going back to small wars and insurgency. And, and, and that seems to be failing as well. And I think the lesson that we're learning now, and again, overlearning the lesson, is we're not doing any of this anymore. We're staying out of it. We're trying to, to watch from the sidelines and withdraw ourselves completely. So, and, and the, the issue here is not the war on terror. The major lesson to be learned is that the military on its own, the military as security lever in, in, in dealing with terrorism is a very limited one. It has a role to play, but a very limited one. Where terrorism has been defeated or moderated, it has never been done so through through uh, security levers or, or through military power and, and force. So I think the lesson is, you know, we need to make use of the tools that we have. So one tool has, has, has absolutely been diplomatic engagement. I think the understanding here is that we need to engage with the Taliban. It's important that we, that we engage with groups where we can. When they want to talk to us, we need to talk to them rather than saying they're terrorists. We're not talking to terrorists because, you know, confrontation has led to more uh, radicalization and has actually been again self-defeating. The other thing is, I think we are competing now in a highly mediatized cyberspace, information space, and fighting terrorism also takes place in the information space. It is about narratives. We need to get our narratives in order. We need to fill the say-do gaps that we still have. And I think the lesson from the war against ISIS has been, at least in this part of the world, that we've been actually rather good in winning in terms of narratives domestically against the narratives of the Islamic State. And so, you know, there's a lesson there that we're saying, okay, we need to shift away from the military domain into the information domain, into diplomacy, socioeconomic engagement, development. There are a lot of things you can do, but disengaging completely would be the wrong lessons from the war on terror. If we now say, as we've done in Afghanistan, we're just going out completely, leave everything the way it is, then you create vacuums. And these vacuums will be filled by people who are not like-minded and who will actually be more uh, destabilizing than stabilizing. So I think the lesson needs to be, we don't have to withdraw completely. And even if we say we don't want to do major combat operations anymore, which I think is a good lesson, uh, and, you know, regime change, not doing regime change is also a good lesson. There's a lot of other things that can be done to kind of stand up for uh, the values that we once stood for. And I think we need a clean cut now. And if we've done this clean cut, particularly when they're in the engagement with the Arab world and, and the Islamic world, but we need to find a way to re-engage through other levers. And I think there's quite a lot of room for us to do so. The, the fear I have is that the lesson learned was overlearned, that we're just standing on the sidelines, letting others uh, at, uh, pick up the pieces or kind of fill that vacuum, such as Russia, such as China, and obviously uh, um, forces and powers of the region, such as you know the UAE or Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, and others who then fill that space and necessarily don't necessarily do that with our interests in mind. So I think we we have to be very careful that we don't overlearn the lesson. Mm. Good points. Uh, thank you so much, Andreas. Sure, my pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Andreas Krieg, a lecturer on security studies at King's College London, and editor of Divided Gulf, published by Palgrave in 2019. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. 
and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Next week, we consider the impact America's war on terror has had on Yemen with my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Kendall. Hope you can join us. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.